Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Me neither. Hey, did you know that next year's election is on November 5th? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Try to remember that, would you? I got the feeling that something right. Plus the treason. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And the gunpowder. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. To the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Hey, here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and a whole bunch of other affiliates across this great land of ours. Too many to list today. We've got that much show once again. Welcome to the Bradcast, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today when I knew that we were going to talk about Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election with a uh, former federal prosecutor on today's show, specifically about whether the federal trial in that criminal case is actually, uh, well, two cases concerning the stolen election, one of them federal, as currently scheduled to begin on March 4th of 2024, the day before Super Tuesday on March 5th. We were going to talk about whether that can actually reach a verdict before voters head to the polls on the, yes, 5th of November Next year. Well, that former federal prosecutor, Randall Lyason, will be joining us shortly for insight on that, as he recently discussed in a New York Times op-ed. But what I didn't know until late today, Desi Doyen, hello. Yes, hello. Is that, guess what? We're going to have a lot of news related to that case at two different state levels today. Things are moving fast. Uh, uh, for a change. <laughs> I'll get to that in a moment, but I also didn't know that we'd have still more top Republicans in the U.S. House heading for the exits. I should have known. Last month, it was far-right Tea Party Freedom Caucus member Ken Buck of Colorado. Last week, it was New York Republican George Santos expelled from office by more than 100 of his own Republican colleagues in the House. And on Tuesday, it was North Carolina's far-right, but not Insane enough, apparently, for the bulk of the House GOP at this point, Patrick McHenry, who served as temporary House Speaker for about three weeks in October. He's the guy with the bow tie that after Republicans had fired their previous House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Both Buck and McHenry announced that they would not be running for reelection next year, despite serving very Republican districts where they almost certainly would have won reelection next year. And now on Wednesday, as Washington Post reports, California Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who was ousted as speaker in October in a revolt by hard right members. How can you tell which ones are hard right at this point? (laughs) True. McCarthy will not seek reelection to his congressional seat next year, and he will retire at the end of this month. 
he announced on Wednesday. Quote, I've decided to depart the House at the end of this year to serve America in new ways, said McCarthy in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. I know my work is only getting started. God help us all. McCarthy's retirement will end a 17-year House career in which he rose through the ranks of Republican leadership, culminating with a nine-month stint as Speaker. His ouster marks the first time in history that the House voted to remove its leader, a move that threw the chamber into a period of instability, which is a nice way of describing it. His term was set to end in January of 2025, He represents California's 20th district, which covers much of the state's Central Valley. That would be oil country. Yep. Until the uh, special election to replace him, McCarthy's absence will further narrow a fractious Republican majority in the House. When the House returns in January, Republicans will only be able to lose two votes from their ranks in order to pass any legislation at a time when the chamber faces major decisions on government spending and foreign aid. And yes, once again, a potential government shutdown, because that's how Republicans roll these days. The dynamic could force the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who assumed the post after the three-week tumult following McCarthy's ouster, might force him to work with Democrats, once again, if you can imagine such a thing, in order to avert government shutdown as soon as mid-January. Mid-January. January 15th, by the way, for the record, is also the presidential GOP caucus day in Iowa. I think it's going to be a busy year. <laughs> Sounds like it. Uh, Though McCarthy initially denied reports, he would retire in the uh, weeks after his ouster. And because Kevin McCarthy lies like he breathes, he ultimately suggested he was weighing the decision as rumors were swirling that he might be heading for the exit. McCarthy now joins more than three dozen House members from both parties who have announced they will not seek re-election in 2024. But McCarthy's departure marks the end of the generation known informally as the Post notes, citing GOP propaganda at the time, the era of the young guns, which pledged to usher in a, quote, new generation of conservative leaders. Over the past decade, however, Speakers McCarthy and Paul Ryan and House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, all the GOP young guns, were all pushed out, not by Democrats, but by the far-right flank, which viewed them as establishment figures who did not reflect the Republican base, particularly once Donald Trump became president. McCarthy made history, however, at several points. Uh, Over the past 11 months, he became the first speaker in 100 years who did not secure the speakership On the first vote, it took 15 rounds over four days to do so, and he also became the first speaker ever to be removed from the roll, throwing the House into a three-week standstill until Republicans unanimously elected Mike Johnson. What a legacy. He's a history maker, man. Under California law, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom now must call for a special election to replace McCarthy within two weeks 
of the congressman's exit at the end of the year. That race must begin with a primary special election that should be scheduled about 10 weeks after Newsom's announcement and then a general election scheduled about 10 weeks after that. So that means that McCarthy's seat is probably going to be empty until June at this point, depriving the uh, thin GOP majority of a much-needed vote in his Republican-leading district. Had McCarthy waited until 2024, apparently, to announce his retirement, Newsom would have had the option to wait until November to hold a special election, keeping that seat vacant even longer. So um, it's going to get uh, it's going to get even tougher for Republicans in the House in the coming weeks and months. Meanwhile, another news of note today as the broken GOP caucus in Congress cannot even decide if they wish to support uh, the defeat of fascism in Europe by sending money to help arm our small-D Democratic allies in sovereign Ukraine to defend against the ongoing deadly imperialist invasion by their neighbor. That would be Vladimir Putin's fascist Russia. Uh, With that ongoing, four Russian men accused of torturing an American during the invasion of Ukraine have been charged with war crimes by the U.S. in a first-of-its-kind case, the Justice Department announced on Wednesday, which is good. Not specifically that Russians are being charged with war crimes, but that the U.S. is charging anyone with such a crime. Maybe that will help stop the U.S. from committing them itself in the future. It is the first prosecution against members of the Russian armed forces in connection with atrocities during Moscow's war against Ukraine. It's the first time the DOJ has brought charges under a nearly 30-year-old statute that makes it a crime to subject an American to torture or inhumane treatment during a war. The charges unfortunately, are largely symbolic for now, given the unlikely prospects of the department bringing any of the four defendants, who are all fugitives, into custody. But U.S. officials describe the case as a history-making moment in their investigation into Russian war crimes, noting that, yes, more such charges could be coming. Quote, this is our first And you should expect more, said Attorney General Merrick Garland at a news conference on Wednesday morning. He said, quote, we will not forget the atrocities in Ukraine and we will never stop working to bring those responsible to justice. Four Russians are identified as members of the Russian Armed Forces or its proxy units. Two are described as commanding officers. They're accused of kidnapping an American man from his home in a Ukrainian village in 2022. The American was then beaten and interrogated while being held for 10 days at a Russian military compound. An American held and beaten before he was eventually evacuated with his wife, who is Ukrainian. The American told uh, federal agents who had traveled to Ukraine last year investigating the uh, Uh, the matter that Russian soldiers had abducted him, stripped him naked, pointed a gun at his head and badly beaten him. That, according to the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he also uh, was subjected to harsh interrogation methods, threatened with sexual assault and forced to participate in his own mock execution, 
according to a five-count indictment unsealed on Wednesday. Mayorkas said the evidence gathered by our agents speaks to the brutality, criminality, and depravity of Russia's invasion. Garland has been outspoken on war crimes in Ukraine since Russia's invasion began in February of 22. Independent human rights experts backed by the United Nations have said that they have found continued evidence of war crimes committed by Russian forces, some so terrible that I am not going to share them with you. But that is apparently the sort of thing that Republicans just are not sure if they should, you know, help Ukraine defend against for some reason. The International Criminal Court, or ICC, issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin in March for war crimes, accusing him of personal responsibility for the abduction of thousands of children from Ukraine. But again, I don't know. Ho-hum. Am I right, congressional Republicans? And unfortunately, by the way, too many on the far left who are not in Congress but still somehow are arguing that the U.S. should have nothing to do with defending against this sort of thing. This, these sorts of atrocities and defending uh, democracy itself in Ukraine. A Kremlin uh, spokesperson said that Russia does not recognize the ICC. They consider its decisions legally void. But guess what? So does the U.S., which is also conveniently enough not a member of the ICC. But the Justice Department, at least, has been cooperating under Joe Biden with the ICC and is supporting Ukrainian prosecutors as they carry out their own war crimes investigation. Again, maybe that will at least make it harder in the future for the U.S. to ignore our own war crimes and the ICC itself. So I think this is a good thing, setting aside whatever hypocrisy you might wish to find. And there's plenty to find. The U.S. was expected to announce a $175 million package of military aid to Ukraine on Wednesday. The Pentagon has said there is about $1.1 billion left in funding to replenish U.S. military stockpiles for weapons and equipment to be sent to Ukraine. But Republicans are currently refusing to send any more aid uh, unless uh, something, something the U.S. southern border with Mexico. What that has to do with these atrocities ongoing in Ukraine, uh, I couldn't tell you. As to uh, unexpected legal action regarding Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, as mentioned at the top of the show, there are two different news stories uh, here today. In a legal settlement on Wednesday, the 10 Republicans who signed official-looking paperwork falsely purporting that Donald Trump had won the election in Wisconsin in 2020. All 10 of them have agreed to withdraw their inaccurate filings to acknowledge that, yes, Joe Biden actually did win the presidency, and they agreed to not serve as presidential elect electors in 2024 or in any election where Donald Trump is on the ballot. Wednesday's civil settlement with the so-called fake electors up in the Badger State marks the first time that pro-Trump electors have agreed 
to revoke their false filings and to not repeat their actions in the next presidential election. It comes as Republicans in two other states, now actually three, but I'll get to that in a second, face criminal charges for falsely claiming to be presidential electors. Documents released as part of the settlement reveal one of the Wisconsin Republicans appeared to refer to the attempt to install Trump for a second term as a, quote, possible steal. Desi, a a possible steal. One of the actual Republican electors was willing to call it a possible steal. Gosh, now we'll see if the corporate media decides to call it an actual steal. Do you think they can call it that now that the people who were actually trying to steal the election called it that? Since that's what it was, that Republican expressed skepticism about the plan up in Wisconsin, but told others he was going to go along with it in part. Why? Because he feared he would face blowback from other Trump supporters if he didn't go along with it. The lawsuit in this case filed last year, uh, the the one that was settled on Wednesday, uh, was filed last year by two of the state's actual rightful electors. It alleged that the Republicans had taken part in a conspiracy to defraud voters and sought up to $200,000 from each of the Trump electors. No money, however, is being exchanged as part of this settlement, though uh, there are also no criminal charges yet either in Wisconsin for now. The Biden electors Uh, who are suing, they're continuing their lawsuit in Wisconsin against the two attorneys who assisted the uh, Republican fake electors there. That would be Jim Troopas, a former Dane County judge who led Trump's recount efforts in the state, and our friend Kenneth Chesbro, or The Cheese. (laughs) Uh, He advised Republicans around the country and he pleaded guilty to a felony in October to conspiring to overturn the Biden's win in Georgia. Yes, to steal Biden's win in Georgia as part of Fonnie Willis's broad conspiracy case against Donald Trump and 19 others in the Peach State. So so, uh, Ken Cheesebro is still on the hook up in Wisconsin in this uh, civil case, at least. Attorneys for the Biden electors said that they viewed today's settlement as a success because it included the release of records that detailed how the Republicans carried out their plans. They said they hoped it would prevent anyone from filing false elector paperwork in the future. What you see in the documents, said Scott Thompson, an attorney representing the Biden electors, is that although many people involved have sort of disapproval and sometimes disgust with what's going on, nobody said stop. Among the uh, those exchanges, for example, in, in one, Andrew Hitt, who's one of the fake electors and the chair of the Wisconsin Republican Party in 2020, he disclosed that Senator Ron Johnson advocated after the election for having the state's GOP-controlled legislature choose the, uh, choose the electors. In other words, have the legislature steal the election from the voters. That's a sitting U.S. Senator, Ron Johnson. In another exchange, the same man, Andrew Hitt, again, a fake elector and the chair of the Wisconsin Republican Party, expressed worries about the Trump campaign strategy for the 
fake Trump electors writing in a text message to the state party's executive director, quote, these guys are up to no good and it's going to fail miserably. But of course, he never said stop. Don't do it. And then uh, a few hours later uh, on Wednesday, a Nevada grand jury indicted criminally indicted six Republicans who submitted phony certificates to Congress falsely declaring Donald Trump the winner of the 2020 presidential election in their state. That's more like it, making uh, Nevada now the third uh, to seek charges against the so-called fake electors. That out of seven states where this attempt, uh, this attempted election theft was carried out by Republicans in 2020. Quote, we cannot allow attacks on democracy to go unchallenged, said Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford in a statement on Wednesday. Today's indictments are the product of a long and thorough investigation, and I'm confident that our judicial system will see justice done. Ford began investigating the fake, fake electors just last month. It was a shift for the first-term Democrat, who previously was quiet on whether he would investigate the fake electors. The state's six phony GOP Trump electors have all been charged with offering a false instrument for filing and uttering a forged instrument. Those two categories of felonies have penalties that range from one to either four or five years in prison. Among the fake electors now facing charges is Nevada GOP Chair Michael McDonald. Clark County GOP Chair Jesse Law was also indicted, along with Jim Hindle, who runs elections in rural Story County. Yes, a Republican election official attempted to defraud the 2020 presidential election in Nevada. Wow. I mean, with the uh, with the Wisconsin settlement and these uh, the indictments in Nevada yep. of the fake electors, yep. it is just underscores how it was really the entire insurrection was a Republican party wide conspiracy. Apparently, at least in seven states, they were willing to do this crap. Uh, you know, including the the heads of the parties in these various states. Michigan's attorney general filed felony charges back in July against 16 of the 16 Republican fake electors in that state. They face eight criminal charges each, including forgery and conspiracy to commit election forgery. The top charge carried in that state a maximum penalty of 14 years in prison. Down in Georgia, three of that state's 16 fake Trump electors were charged in August alongside Donald Trump and that sweeping indictment accusing them of participating in a huge, wide scheme to illegally overturn the results of the presidential election. Hey, how about possibly steal, AP? Can you say that? They have pleaded not guilty down there. Nevada's uh, Democratic AG Aaron Ford had testified in support of a, a bill that would have criminalized future fake electors that passed Nevada's Democratic-controlled legislature. However, it did not become law. It was vetoed by the state's new Republican governor, Joe Lombardo, who said the punishment uh, between four and ten years in prison was just too harsh. Too harsh a penalty for trying to steal a presidential election. Now, what should be the penalty for 
stealing a trying to steal a presidential election? How about for a then sitting president who tries to steal a presidential election? What should that penalty be? And is it even possible that the one who has been charged, the one former then sitting president who has been charged with crimes related to exactly that, is it possible that he may be able to push off his trial? and a possible, even likely, guilty verdict until after the next presidential election in which he is currently leading in the polls. Is that even possible? Is it possible that Americans will not know, one way or another, whether he will be found guilty in a court of law for those crimes four years later, before they are likely to be asked to vote for or against this guy again next year? Given Trump's Donald Trump's stalling tactics that are available to him in in the many criminal trials related to this and more next year, will he be able to play the court system to stall his trials until after he could become president again, at which time he'll have the power to make most, if not all of these criminal trials simply disappear entirely? Well, Not, apparently, at least, if it's up to the U.S. District Court judge in the federal case charging Trump with attempting to steal the 2020 election. Last week, in responding to Trump's motion that his position as president somehow made him immune to criminal charges in special counsel Jack Smith's federal indictment, charging that he tried to steal the 2020 election. The U.S. District Court Judge Tanya Chutkin, she wrote in part in her response denying Trump's legal motion, quote, whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, the U.S. has only one chief executive at a time, and that position does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass. She cited former Justice Felix Frankfurter, who said, quote, if one man can be allowed to determine for himself what is law, every man can. That means first chaos, then tyranny. Chutkin continued, every president will face difficult decisions. But whether to intentionally commit a federal crime should not be one of them. By definition, she noted, the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed does not grant special latitude to violate those laws. She notes that the defendant's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. Former presidents, she wrote, enjoy no special conditions on their federal criminal liability. Defendant may be subject to federal investigation, indictment, prosecution, conviction, and punishment for any criminal acts undertaken while in office, wrote the judge. A former president's exposure to federal criminal liability is essential to fulfilling our constitutional promise of equal justice under the law. That was from Judge Chutkin's response to Trump's motion that he should not even face trial at all in the federal January 6th related case because he was immune to such crimes in his role as president at the time. At the time, same time, however, there are other competing interests. Trump does have a right to a fair trial and to all the pretrial 
legal motions and appeals that any other indicted person might enjoy. At the same time as that, a case can also be made that the American people have a right as well to the speedy exercise of justice. And as former federal prosecutor Randall D. Eliason argued at the New York Times last week, they are also entitled to a verdict in advance of the next presidential election. Will the American people be able to get that verdict in advance of the next presidential election? Well, yeah, it's possible, says Eliasson, but if so, uh, the criminal court system is going to have to start playing along and quickly. We are all waiting for exactly that. Will the courts do what needs to be done here? Well, that prosecutor who's calling on them to do so, Randall Eliasson, he joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. at this point, isn't it? Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. How long we'll have to wait? Well, that remains to be seen. If Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for president in 2024, writes former federal prosecutor Randall D. Eliasson in the New York Times last week, it's now clear he will likely still have criminal indictments hanging over his head on Election Day. It's possible that his criminal liability for the events leading up to the January 6th riot at the Capitol will remain unresolved. If that happens, notes Eliasson, voters will go to the polls without knowing whether one of the candidates in the current election is criminally responsible for trying to overturn the last one and subvert the will of the voters. Having an election under such circumstances is unthinkable, he writes. As Richard Nixon might have put it, voters have a right to know whether their candidate is a crook. It can be avoided, says Eliasson, but it's going to require the judiciary to take some extraordinary steps. And whether it happens will be decided by a relative handful of federal jurists, including a number appointed by Mr. Trump himself. Thus begins Randall Eliasson's uh, piece in the New York Times headlined, Why Judges in the Trump January 6th Trial Need a Rocket Docket. But at this point, with four different criminal trials for four different criminal cases on 91 criminal felony charges in four different jurisdictions, 
for the presumptive GOP nominee with all presumably to get underway next year amid a presidential election year, is it even possible at this point for any of them to be brought to a conclusion or at least to a verdict in the trial court before Election Day, the 5th of November next year? And given Donald Trump's various rights of appeal to even being tried at all in some of those cases, should those appeals be rushed by the courts to ensure at least one of these cases reaches a verdict before voters head to the polls? Or would that be seen as unfair to the former president? Joining us now for answers to some of those questions and thoughts on a few others I have is our old friend Randall D. Eliason, former chief of the DOJ's Fraud and Public Corruption Section at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, who now teaches white-collar criminal law at George Washington University Law School, contributes to the New York Times, and blogs at his own Substack site, sidebarsblog.com. Counselor, it has been a while, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Nice to be back. We are all uh, very familiar with the charges and the currently four criminal cases against him. But So why, in your opinion, is it important for at least one of those trials to actually be wrapped up before Election Day next year? You suggest in particular that leaving the, uh, the federal January 6th case, the attempted stolen election case, unresolved, that that could, quote, spell disaster for the rule of law. How so? Well, I think... It's particularly important that at least one of the cases about the January 6th events Mm -hmm. go to trial before the voters have to go to the polls. And that means either Georgia or the D.C. federal case. Mm -hmm. The Georgia case seems really unlikely to be finished in 2024. I mean, currently the D.A. is proposing an August trial date. Mm -hmm. Not clear that will happen, even if it does, given the size of the case, that could well he could still be in trial on election day in mm-hmm. that case. Right. So the Jack Smith case in DC has the best chance. And my argument is that, you know, democracy requires an informed electorate and there's nothing more important for the voters to know in the 2024 presidential election, if Trump is on the ballot, mm-hmm. than whether a jury has found him criminally responsible for basically trying to overthrow democracy and overturn the last election. So, I mean, I can't imagine a more important fact for people to know before they go to the polls. So that was the point of the piece. It's kind of mm-hmm. critical that that trial get resolved, if at all possible. So people have that information. And if they still want to choose to vote for him, you know, at least then they're informed, right? But we need to know the outcome of this case before we make that choice. Well, you also argue in the uh, in the Times that going without a verdict in any of these trials is, quote, completely avoidable if the judges who control the trial schedules are actually, uh, quote, willing to do what's necessary. Now, uh, that little word if is doing a lot of work there. First, let's discuss let's discuss first what would be necessary here for that to happen. And then I want to get into whether, uh, you know, they would or should do so, do what is necessary. What would the what would the judges and appellate court judges, including presumably the U.S. Supreme Court justices here, some of them appointed by Trump himself, What would they need to do here in order to ensure a conviction or an acquittal at the trial court level before voters head to the polls next, not November, actually, October for early voting and certainly by Election Day on November 5th? What would they have to do? So to the first point, the completely avoidable point in this piece, I'm primarily talking about the D.C. trial at Mm -hmm. that that point. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. 
there is no practical way that all four cases can go to trial next year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just not physically possible to do that many trials, right? I, you know, back to back. And and the, and it's pretty clear the Florida federal cases, the, the judge appears to be slow walking that, taking forever to make relatively routine decisions. That's not happening anytime soon. I already talked about Georgia. Mm-hmm. The New York state case has kind of slipped into the background. So to me, it's all about the federal D.C. case. And the trial is currently set for March 4th, the day before Super Tuesday. So mm-hmm. that's the critical one. Um, and that's and, and, and that resu- that uh, that involves the heart of the January 6 allegations, it's, you know, Trump conspiring to overturn the election. Mm-hmm. So it's also the one that I think is most directly relevant to his fitness for office. Mm. Although the classified information case, obviously pretty relevant too, but yeah. that's not going to happen next year. So what, what would they have to do is they just have to, um, as I pointed out in the piece, a couple, a, a, a very limited category of legal defenses, you're entitled to what's called an interlocutory appeal or a pretrial appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, normally if you lose a motion to dismiss, you've got to wait until if and when you're convicted and then you can take it up again on appeal. But for his immunity claim, which judge Chutkin just rejected last Friday, mm-hmm. um, and claim of double jeopardy, those are usually allowed to appeal and get a resolution from the appeals courts before the government can put you on trial because the, the right is a right not to be tried at all. Uh-huh. And if you had to wait until after you were convicted, you've already lost that right, right? Gotcha. So the only way to make it a meaningful right is you get this interlocutory appeal. Well, that can take, in the normal course, that can easily take 12, 18 months. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I had one example in the in the piece, uh, the, the first indictment of New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, mm-hmm. he appealed on speech or debate grounds, and it delayed the trial for 18 months. And that's pretty, the, the, the appellate courts just in a typical case, they're just they're just slow. Right. They, they, you know, the, the scheduling involves months. One side gets months to write their brief, and then the other side gets a month to respond, and then the, they schedule the argument a month later, and then they can take a year to decide it if they want to. So it's just – it's not a fast process in a typical case. So what they need to do is pretty simple. They need to put these uh, motions on a fast track. Trump is going to appeal the denial of Judge Chutkin's motion – of right. Judge Chutkin's denial of his motions last Friday. And the D.C. Circuit just needs to schedule the arguments in a couple of weeks. I mean, they just need to say, OK, uh, we'll hear your appeal. And, you know, uh, appellant brief is due in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Government's brief is due the week after that and arguments the week after that. And they just they can do that when they want to. They have done it in the past. Um, they put the gag order motion on a on a very fast track just recently, for example. Right. So it's not a, not something they can't do. Uh, they just have to, you know, have the will to do it. And, and same with Supreme Court. And and yeah, you argue that, in fact, the Supreme Court has uh, put cases on this fast track in the past. There's precedent for this. You cite both Watergate, uh, for example, and the and the year 2000 election. All right. Bush v. Gore, they decided it in one day. Right. Um, so, I mean, they can move quickly when they want to. Right. And but that's really what it all comes down to now. And I actually think it's a little bit. <laughs> It's, I don't know, sobering, scary, whatever you want to say, to think about, really, I don't think it's an overstatement to say, you know, the, the fate of democracy rests in whether the small number of judges are willing to expedite these appeals or not. Because if he's elected and none of these cases have gone to trial, then all the cases are going to go away because he'll just quash the federal cases. Yep. And the state cases, at the very least, are going to have to be delayed until he's in office because I don't think there's any way the courts are going to let a state put a sitting U.S. president on trial. So, I mean, that's his main defense strategy at this point is 
right. try to delay everything till after the election, win the election, and then I can make all my criminal problems go away. So and, and that's it, what we need to avoid. Yeah. And, and it is notable, I think, even in even in uh, Trump's cases, um, as I recall, in the uh, in the Trump in the stolen documents case in, in Florida, uh, prior to his indictment being brought, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a very conservative court, actually placed that case on a on a bit of a rocket docket like I had never seen before. At one point, I recall uh, they required I think it was one of Trump's motions to be filed by midnight that night and then the prosecutors right. to be to file their response to it 6 a.m. the next morning, as I recall. So this can be done when the appeals court decides uh, it's necessary, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes there's a, a you know particular deadline coming up like mm-hmm. there was in the Bush v. Gore case. You know, right. the, the certification had to take place by a certain date. And what I'm arguing in the piece is, you know, they need they need to give this the same kind of urgency. You know, there's not a fixed. Well, there is a deadline. It's the election. Right. But but the trial's got going to take some time, obviously. Right. So what they really need to be that the way they need to be thinking about this case is with that same sense of urgency that we can resolve. The, it's it's not going to infringe on any rights of the defendant. Um, it can be fully briefed and argued and considered. I don't even like the word rushed because that implies they're not going to do a full job. Right. And that's not even it. That's not, it's just an accelerated schedule, which they can do and be and be perfectly thorough and fair, but just recognize that we can't treat this like an ordinary case. Because if we treat it like an ordinary case, it may all become moot if he wins the election and just shuts it all down. So well, uh, l- let me argue the other side of that, Randall, uh, devil's advocate here. You know, we've heard, uh, for example, in the court, uh, in in court and in the filings from uh, Fulton County, Georgia uh, District Attorney Fonnie Willis, that she has no interest in the election schedule. She is interested in the rule of law, asserting, uh, assuring, you know, justice is served uh, for for both Trump and voters. Uh, in that state conspiracy case against him for attempting to steal the 2020 election there in in Georgia. Uh, Judge Chutkin in the federal election theft case has also indicated she would not be working uh, around the uh, working the court schedule around Donald Trump's campaign schedule. They're just not interested. So mm-hmm. if it's not, in, uh, you know, if, if it's important to not allow the case uh, and the trial itself to be derailed for the election campaign. Can a case conversely be made that the election itself should not dictate the the schedule, should not be cause for rushing the administration of justice in these cases? Yeah, using that word rushing again. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, well, that, you know Donald Trump's going to use that word, Randall. Yeah, so. we put a pin in that. Remind yeah. me to come back to that. But, okay. No, I think it's I think it's a different point. Um the, what the judges and the DA are saying is we're not going to there, – there's no sort of special rules for criminal defendants who happen to, who also choose to run for president. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, they don't get to come in and say, as his attorneys did in Georgia last week, you can't even put me on trial because that would be election interference. I mean the, so, so they don't get to sort of dictate the schedule or say, oh, we can't go to trial that month because it's the Iowa caucuses or anything like that. We're not going to let a criminal defendant – dictate the normal court procedures just because they mm-hmm. chose to run for president. But I'm making a different point. I'm talking about sort of the voters and democracy and the need to have that information for the voters to make an informed choice. So I'm not talking about altering the court system mm-hmm. uh, to to sort of uh, accommodate the the fact that the candidate that the defendant is a candidate. Right. I'm talking about just the need to get this information out there. And 
you know, the courts can easily do that if they want to. Um, and it would be appropriate, could, you would argue, for them to keep yeah. that in mind as they absolutely. set absolutely. schedules. Okay. Um, just like they did in Watergate, for example. You know, I mean, you know, the, the, there was an appeal to the Supreme Court of Nixon's refusal to turn over the tapes, right? Mm -hmm. the, the White House tapes were subpoenaed. That went to the Supreme Court. I mean, there was nothing theoretically urgent about that, right? The mm -hmm. Supreme Court could have taken six, eight months, a year to decide it, mm -hmm. like they do many cases. Right. They reached in and grabbed it. They didn't even wait for the D.C. Circuit to decide it. They grabbed it, granted certiorari before the appeals court argument, really? took it immediately, and decided it in a couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, so, I mean— Those were the days, they, yeah. Yeah, right, okay. the good old days, right. Yeah. Uh, because they recognized how important it was for the political system to have this issue resolved. And that's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. The political system can decide how to deal with Trump, but it needs to know the answer to this question. Yeah. Um, so— but I want to go back to the fairness argument, you know, because you said he'll say it's unfair and things like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, he'll say that and you can't avoid that's what he'll say. But I think the important point is he's got a right to an appeal. He doesn't have a right to an appeal that takes 18 months. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's no inherent reason <laughs> that the appellate process needs to take that long. Any lawyer being honest would tell you this. They can put these briefs together in a week or two. They're already have written lengthy briefs before Judge Chutkin, and the arguments aren't going to change that much, uh -huh. you know. So it doesn't take that long, and the D.C. Circuit can still give it complete, full, fair consideration. But just, and that's what he has a right to, and that's what he should get. But it doesn't—he doesn't have a right to have it take a year and a half. And uh, technically, since you know the court system so well, uh, all the, all your years at the DOJ, uh, you argue in your uh, in your Times piece, Randall Lyason, that uh, quote: "There's no reason the entire process, including Supreme Court review in this case, talking about the uh, January uh, federal January sixth case." could not be completed by January. That would allow the trial date to stay on track, the trial set for March uh, March 4. Uh, by mm -hmm. January, Randall? That, I mean, that seems almost unthinkable at this point for the, for the U.S. court system and with appeals that could go all the way to the Supreme Court. We're already nearing Christmas. Yeah. But is it really even technically uh, possible, schedule-wise, yes. for it to happen that quick? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the courts just have to have the will to set the schedule. I mean, they're in charge. Yeah. They set the dates. The lawyers are going to do it, right? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I guess they are. Yeah. And, and, and they that's, just, that's yeah. almost eight weeks. If you go to, from now to the end of January, seven, eight weeks. Yeah. yeah, that's plenty of time if they if they have the will to do it. Yeah. Now, if it's— And uh, that also, the yeah. Supreme Court might not even take the case, which that speeds things up, right? Uh, um, they may just yeah. let the lower court's uh, decision stand as is. Yeah, if the D.C. Circuit affirms Judge Chutkin, which is what I would expect— the, the Supreme Court might just say, yeah, we're not going to take it. But going back to uh, the year 2000, the election case there, which I remember better than Watergate because I'm a little younger than you, I think. But um, in that case, they decide. I mean, they, they said, OK, we, we want you to uh, both sides to, to brief us within the next whatever it was, 24 hours to whatever day, two, three days. And they got it done. So, yep. Technically, yep. you're right. It can be done if they decide they want it to be done. Now, uh, another point here is if it is true, Randall, that the American people should know whether or not Donald Trump is guilty or not before election, uh, the election day next year in November, isn't it also equally true for GOP primary election voters next year with the first votes being cast in you know mid-January in the Iowa caucuses? Don't they deserve to know that as well? Yeah, I mean, ideally, but that's impossible at this point. I mean, 
the, the like I said, Super Tuesday is the day after his trial is set to begin. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at, the reality at this point is the DC case has the best chance of going to trial anytime in early 2024. And even that one is not going to be concluded until basically most of the primaries are over. So yeah, ideally I'd like the GOP voters to have that information as well. That seems impossible at this point. Um, but you can at least have that information, as I noted in the piece, mm-hmm. before the Republican National Convention. Right. And even if Trump gets enough delegates through the primaries, you know, there's, there's such a thing called a contested convention. You know, mm-hmm. they could go to the convention and say, well, he won all these primaries, but that was before he was convicted. And now do we really want to actually nominate a convicted felon uh, to be our candidate? And, and the convention could nominate somebody else. You're right. And in that case, at least uh, uh, Republican voters would have that information. I think the convention is August of next year. So July, I think. Uh, yeah. Is it July? Uh, but you're talking about a, a, a March trial date. Uh, even if it goes on for a couple of months, March, April, May, they would still have that information by the time they got to the convention. Uh, whether it's in July or August. You're absolutely right. Uh, Finally, Randall, uh, you conclude in your um, in your op ed in The New York Times by arguing, quote, a functioning democracy requires an informed electorate. It's hard to imagine a more important piece of information for voters to have next November than whether a candidate is criminally culpable for trying to overturn the last presidential election. Our legal system can resolve this case expeditiously, while still protecting the defendant's rights, but the judiciary will have to step up and do its part to protect democracy. That said, and I I do realize, uh, Randall, you have no particular crystal ball here. Do you see any indications that the courts will step up in this fashion as of right now? Are are you able to leave us with any hope here, Randall? It's the holiday season after all. (laughs) Well, there is one one thing I can point to. Yeah hopeful, I think, is that I mentioned earlier, they did it with the gag order. Um, now, that's a little bit different situation because that sort of by definition needs to be acted on quickly because it's ongoing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and that was the it, D.C. court as well, right? Uh, the, the D.C. circuit, yeah. That DC was circuit. Judge Chuckin's gag order. Mm-hmm. And they they put that argument on, they gave them like two weeks to file the briefs. The government's brief was due a week later. Then they had the argument the week after that. Now, they still haven't decided it. Uh-huh. So that's you know, that's been a couple of weeks and, and that seems kind of long. But um, so, I mean, that's at least a signal that the potential is there for the D.C. Circuit to say, yeah, we really ought to move this thing along. And I know Jack Smith's team is super focused on this. I mean, they basically ask Judge Chuckin, hurry up and decide these two motions first, because mm-hmm. we want to try to expedite any appeal, do everything we possibly can to expedite any appeals to keep the trial date on track. Mm-hmm. So. They're going to be really focused on it and pushing it. And, you know, there are at least some indications that the D.C. Circuit maybe recognizes uh, the importance of it. Would we expect a D.C. uh, a panel on the D.C. Circuit, a three judge panel, as opposed to the uh, entire court on bank? In other words, will it be a panel first making their decision and then he's got to go? Then he has the right to go to the full court and then he has the right to go to the Supreme Court. Yes, that's right. It would be a three-judge panel first. Now, then, that's his. He's got a right to that one. Uh-huh. Then he can ask the full court to take it on bond, but he doesn't have a right to that. They can say no. And then he can ask the Supreme Court to take it, and they can also say no. So, But his first appeal and the one that he's guaranteed to uh, will be a three-judge panel. Yeah. 
Well, I'm not sure if I heard actual hope for the holiday season there, but I'm going to try to imagine that I did. Uh, thank you, uh, Randall. And I really do hope they, uh, the judges, I hope the courts read your piece in the New York Times headlined, Why Judges in the Trump January 6th Trial Need a Rocket Docket. The judges I, oh. don't just need it. The American people need it as well. Yeah. Before we go, we got yeah. time for mention one more thing. Sure. The the most common comment I saw in response to the piece was sort of something along the lines of, we already know, right? I mean, what else do people need to know? Voters already have the information they need. They We saw it all on TV. We saw it with our own eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, what difference does this make? And my only response to that is I do think a criminal trial verdict is different. It's in a different category um, from what people see on cable news or you know, here in campaign speeches and things like that. Mm -hmm. And courts, you know, are still in an area we saw in all the lawsuits challenging the election in 2020. You know, people can run around and say whatever they want about the election and voter fraud and who they want and things like that. But when you actually go into court where there are rules and evidence and people testify under oath, you know, all of those claims were rejected. And I think the same is true of the criminal trial. People can spout anything they want. He can say whatever he wants on the campaign trail about what really happened. But if there's a criminal verdict that holds him responsible, that I think potentially moves a lot of voters, mm. maybe not on the extremes on either party, but mm. a lot of people in the center. That's going to be a really important data point. And that's kind of the, the point of my argument. That we, mm. need to, we need to have that information before we have the election. And, of course, I agree with you, and I, I, I hope you're right that it would serve, if it happens, that it would uh, serve to move the at least the, the needle a little bit uh, for folks uh, somewhat in the middle, undecided if such folks still exist. I don't, right. I don't know if it will. I mean, uh, I, I feel like the next target after they've you know targeted all of the other institutions will, of course, be the judiciary. But so far, the center has largely held there. We'll see if it continues to do so. Uh, Randall D. Eliasson, former chief of the fraud and public corruption section at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. He now teaches law at George Washington University Law School, contributes to The Washington Post, The New York Times, everywhere else. And he blogs at his own site, sidebarsblog.com, which is now a Substack site. And I understand um, one of the most popular at the site uh, recently uh, determined by Substack. Stack. So I would uh, point folks over there, side, sidebarsblog.com, sign up for that newsletter. You can also, I think, find Randall on the site still known as Twitter to most of us at R.D. Eliason. Randall, great speaking with you, sir. Hope you have a delightful holiday, and I suspect we'll have much to talk to you about in the coming year. Thanks. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks, Randall. Uh, too much to talk with Randall about, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, true. But, uh, I, I think the whole yeah. thing that he mentions, of course, voters do deserve to know this incredibly important information so they can be informed and make an informed choice. But it also it's hard to believe that there's anybody in the whole wide world who doesn't already have an opinion about this, that true. he was guilty or not. But I guess there are. Uh, true. But uh, as he says, you know, a criminal a criminal adjudication mm -hmm. will it, it stands apart. It's more it's more mm -hmm. than just saying everybody knows we all saw it on TV. Right. But I think it also shows how far off the rails Republicans have gone in their pretend caring for the rule of law, because yes. you'd think that they and Trump would want a speedy trial so uh, yeah. that Trump could clear his name before the election. Right. Considering if he's not, that he says he's innocent all the right, time. Right. He's not guilty. So, of course, he would argue, well, that's only because the courts are stacked against me. And that's what I'm saying. That's what I mentioned to Randall there. You know, 
he's gone against every other institution where anyone would get the idea that Donald Trump won't absolutely turn yeah. against the judiciary, even, uh, you know, members of the judges that he appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, maybe underestimating how twisted Donald Trump is and how far he's willing to go and how far his followers are willing to follow him. Yeah, and we might also find out just how far the judiciary has gone um, in, down the rails on this same, the same pathway. Uh, I don't want to find out that, you know, most I'm of the sure judiciary is in the tank with him. But No, everything's fine. Uh, yeah, everything's sure. Everything's fine. <sighs> We'll see. We shall see. The waiting. The waiting is the hardest part, as yes. they say. Uh, we will continue to wait. Anyway, thank you very much uh, to our guest, Randall Eliason, of course, to our producer, as always, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program or you want to give it another listen or share it with someone you know, love, or hate, you can do so right now for free anytime at bradblog.com. Thanks to uh, those of you who have supported our efforts by hitting one of those donate buttons or going straight to bradblog.com slash donate. I know it's the holiday season. I know you got a lot on your mind. Please keep us in mind and actually keep your fellow Americans in mind because the reason you can download our shows going back to forever for free is thanks to those of you kind enough to, uh, to donate there. And I know there's a whole bunch of you who have been thinking about doing that for a long, long time, but haven't yet done it, today is the day to do it. Not tomorrow, not around Christmas, but right now, <laughs> as soon as this show is done. Much appreciated. Yes, please. Uh, all right, that's it. You can drop me an email if you want. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Would love to hear from you. Will this make a difference if it's heard next year? Bradcast at bradblog.com. You can also find me on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and Twitters at the Brad blog. See you there until we see you here next time with special coverage of debate number four among the GOP <laughs> for some reason. That's on our next broadcast. Until then, uh, we'll see you there and then we'll see you here. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.